Buck Benny, a two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and never misses. Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. It's 2017. Welcome to something new. Well, tonight what we've got going on is you might have tuned in expecting to hear the Jack Benny show from 1942. But what we did was we attached that to Sunday's show, which was the Jack Benny show from 1952. So we brought you the Jack Benny show from 1952 and 1942 on Sunday night, as well as Phil's show from 1952. What that does is it allows you to listen to an hour and a half uninterrupted old-time radio on Sunday nights, and it allows me to have an open slot here where I can fit in some other old-time radio shows. I was kind of missing bringing you some of uh, the other shows besides comedies, and so I was wanting to bring you suspense, and for now, I'm bringing you X-1 as well. Tonight's episode's Both are from 1957, so 60 years ago this week. The first one we're going to present is Suspense. And it is Suspense with actor Jack Kelly, who is from, most people would know him, from uh, playing Bart Maverick. Now, Brett Maverick, played by James Garner, was the famous um, breakthrough star from the... Um, Western called Maverick, but apparently the film filming schedule took longer than they had, so they weren't going to end up with very many episodes for the first season. So they decided to bring in his brother, supposed brother, Bart Maverick, and playing Bart Maverick was Jack Kelly. And the first episode, first episodes of of Maverick wouldn't appear for another six, seven months or so. It'd be beginning of the 1957-1958 television season. Here we have six months or so earlier, we have, of course, Jack Kelly in uh, a performance on suspense, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. Uh, the show for tonight is A Shipment of Mute Fate. And it was done four times on Escape and two times on Suspense. And so it's interesting hearing one of these later presentations of it from Suspense. Uh, It's a great episode. I've always enjoyed this one. If you're into a little suspense and a little bit of adventure, this is a great episode for you. Speaking of that, we are looking towards presenting you a summer of adventure shows, mostly uh, suspenseful escape type radio shows. And the reason we're looking at doing that is because this summer is the 75th anniversary of the first episodes of Suspense coming to radio. It's also the 65th anniversary, no, the 70th anniversary of Escape uh, coming out and onto radio, and it's also um, just a little bit before summer starts. It's the 65th anniversary of Gunsmoke. So I thought, well, what's 
The same with Gunsmoke Suspense and Escape. Well, they're all kind of adventure sort of shows. And so that's the kind of shows we're going to present to you this summer, I believe. Uh, don't hold me to that, but I think that's what we're going to do. Uh, another kind of adventure show that's out there is, of course, science fiction. And tonight we're going to present X-1. It is an episode called A Saucer of Loneliness. And it was originally written by Theodore Sturgeon, the famous science fiction writer. Uh, it was also uh, done besides on X-1. It was also redone uh, in the 1987 version of The Twilight Zone. Uh, I guess it was for its second season. It was the 25th episode starring Shelley Duvall. So you might want to check that out sometime if you want to see another version of this. And I think you'll enjoy Theodore Sturgeon's story. I don't want to give too much away, so I'll just let it go with that. But X-1 was an interesting radio show in that it brought us science fiction every week, and it came on towards the end of the radio era. Uh, I think it started in 1956. And so it was, of course, after Jack was off the air. X-1 came on the air. It was sort of a redo of Dimension X, which had come on uh, about seven years, six years earlier, something like that. But an excellent, excellent show and a fun bit of adventure and a fun bit of science fiction mixed together. Uh, I love 1950s science fiction, and I hope you do as well. Anyway, if you like this experiment that we're doing to bring you these episodes by moving Jack to have two episodes presented on Sunday nights, uh, send me an email and say, hey, I like this because I get to hear more different radio shows. Uh, if you'd rather hear Jack on his normal Thursday night instead of on twice on Sunday night, then tell me that as well. Uh, you can email me at buckbennyotr at gmail.com. Without further ado, here is Jack Kelly in suspense. And then stay tuned for X-1, A Saucer of Loneliness. Suspense. And the producer of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, William N. Robeson. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast in the field. And the Lord God said unto the serpent... Because thou hast done this thing, thou art cursed. And upon thy belly thou shalt go all the days of thy life. And so it has been ever after. With us, the snake has always been the heavy. Let the ancient Aztec venerate the plumed serpent Ketchikoto. Let the Babylonian believe that the twine snakes on a staff represented fertility, wisdom, and healing. Let the early Roman display the caduceus as a symbol of peace and neutrality. We know better. With us, a garter snake can panic a picnic. But a bushmaster loose on an ocean liner. Snake-proof your doors and windows. Take a mill town and listen. As Jack Kelly stars in Martin Storm's great story, The Shipment of Mute Fate. A tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense. 
I stopped on the wharf at LaGuara and looked up the gangplank toward the line of Chan Kay, standing there quietly at her moorings. The day was warm under a bright Venezuelan sun, and the harbor beyond the ship lay drowsy and silent. But all at once, in the midst of those peaceful surroundings, a cold chill gripped me, and I shivered with sudden dread. Dread of the thing I was doing, and was about to do. But too much had happened to turn back now. I'd gone too far to stop. I set the box down on the edge of the wharf, placed it carefully so as to be in plain sight and within gunshot of the captain's bridge. Then I turned and started up the gangplank. I knew what I was going to do, but I couldn't forget that a pair of beady eyes were watching every move I made. Eyes that never blinked and never closed, just watched and waited, and I... Oh, oh, excuse me, sir. I didn't see you. Why, it's Mr. Warner. Hello, Mother Willis. How's the best-looking stewardess on the seven seas? Why, I'm, uh, I'm fine, Mr. Warner. It's, it is nice seeing you again. Hey, wait a minute. That's a fine greeting after two months. Well, I have a great deal to do aboard. Well, I don't believe a word of that. Sailing day's tomorrow. You're simply avoiding me, that's all. Oh, no, really, I'm not. I... And on the trip down from New York, you said I was your favorite passenger. And so you were. And now, if you'll excuse me. Here. What's that you're carrying in your apron? Oh, nothing. Just supplies. Supplies? <laughs> Let's have a look. No, please. What? It's a cat. Oh, it's Clara, Mr. Warner. Mr. Bowman said I had to leave her ashore, and I, I just couldn't. Now, who's Mr. Bowman? The new chief steward. He's English and fussy. Clara's been aboard with me for two years, and I just can't leave her here, and... A foreign country? Especially with her condition so delicate and all. Huh? Oh, oh, yes, I see. Well, I hope you get away with it. You, you won't tell anyone. Not a soul. As a matter of fact, if things don't work out right, we may both end up smuggling. Most happy to have you aboard on the trip down two months ago, Christopher. And I'm very glad you're coming along with us on the run back to New York. Well, thanks, Captain Wood. There is one thing, though. I'm having a little trouble with the customs men here, and I wondered if I you might... I can't do it, Christopher. I just cabled your father this morning. Told him I'd have done it for you if I possibly could. He sent a request from New York, you know. Yes, I, I thought he would. I wired him from upriver last week. I hated to refuse, but it's absolutely out of the question. Captain Wood, I'm afraid I don't follow you. Responsibility to the passengers, son. We'll have women and children aboard. And on a liner, the safety of the passengers comes ahead of anything else. But with proper precautions... Something might happen. I don't know what. But something might. You've carried worse things. There isn't anything worse. And any skipper or float will bear me out. No, Christopher. I simply can't take the chance. And that's final. Final. Well, it wasn't final if I could do anything about it. I hadn't come down here to spend two months in that stinking back country and then be stopped on the edge of the wall. Two months of it. Heat, rain, insects, malaria. I'd gone clear in past the headwaters of the Orinoco. Traveled through country where every step along the jungle trail might be the last one. Morning, Captain Wood. The man at the hotel said you wanted to see me. That's right, Chris. Uh, sit down. Seems you weren't willing to let matters stand the way we left them yesterday. 
I'm sorry to go over your head, Captain, but I had to. The museum sent me all the way down here for it, and I'm not going to be stopped by red tape. This will be the only live Bushmaster ever brought to the United States. If I had my way, that orders our orders. Got a cable from the head office this morning. All right. Suppose we talk about precautions. I'll handle it any way you say. It's got to have a stronger box. That crate's too flimsy. Well, it's stronger than it looks. And that wire screen on top would hold a wildcat. But anyway, I bought a heavy sea chest this morning. We'll put the crate inside of that. Well, sounds all right. Got a lock on it? Heavy padlock. It's fixed so the lid can be propped open a crack without unlocking it. The snake's got to have air. But in dirty weather, that lid stays shut. I'll take no chances. Well, all right, Captain. We'll keep the thing in my cabin. Can't have it in the baggage room, and nobody on board to know about it. Whatever you say, Captain. But we won't have any trouble. After all, it's only a snake. It doesn't have any magical powers. I saw Bushmaster in the zoo at Caracas once. Had it in a glass cage with double walls. It had never moved. Just lay there and look at you as long as you were in sight. You gave a man the creeps. Funny, I didn't know they had a Bushmaster at the Caracas Zoo. They don't now. Found the glass broke one morning and the snake gone. The night watchman was dead. They never found out what happened. Well, the watchman must have broken the glass by accident some way. The way they figured it, the glass was broke from the inside. We sail in four hours. Into the Caribbean with perfect weather and a sea as smooth as an inland lake. The barometer dropped a little on the third day, but cleared up overnight and left nothing worse than a heavy swell. In spite of the calm seas and pleasant weather, I, I found myself feeling more and more often a, an ominous foreboding. I was developing an almost morbid fear of that snake. I stayed clear of the passengers pretty much, got the habit of dropping into Captain Wood's quarters several times a day. He kept the heavy box underneath his berth. I'd approach it quietly, shine my flashlight through the open crack. Never once could I catch that 12-foot devil asleep or even excited. He'd be lying there, half-coiled. Head raised a little, staring out of those beady black eyes, waiting. Still be like that when I turn away to leave. Maybe that's what bothered me, that horrible and constant watching and waiting. What in the name of heaven was he waiting for? Well, hello there, Mr. Warner. Oh, how, how are you, Mother Willis? My, but you and the captain spend an awful lot of time around this cabin. I'm beginning to think the two of you must have some guilty secret. Oh, no, no, nothing like that, Mother Willis. I don't know about Captain Wood, but I certainly don't have any guilty secrets. Well, she's running quite a swell out there, Mr. Bowman. Yes, it's a bit heavy, all right, Mr. Warner. I imagine a storm passed through to the west of us yesterday when the glass dropped. You think it missed us then, huh? Oh, yes, it's what the mate figures... Certainly stirred up some water, though. <laughs> this will put half the passengers in their bunks. Yeah, uh, it makes it lovely for my department. Two-thirds of them will want a steward to all their heads, sir. Well, I'll keep Mother Willis so busy she'll just have... Hey, look at the size of that wave. Huh? Got you, Hoshimet. 
We're going to take it on the boat now. Hang on. Wow, that was a freak. If ever there was one. Not another wave that size in sight. Well, you see him like that sometimes, sir, even in a calm sea. Well, I've got to get below, Mr. Warner. That water probably did some damage to the officer's deck. Yeah, I suppose it... What did you say? Huh? Oh, the uh, wheel companionway was open on the port side. Bridge cabins must have taken a pretty bad smashing. They're right below the... Was something wrong, Mr. Warner? Oh, no, 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 nothing at all, Mr. Bowman. At least I hope not. Of course, I knew it was only one chance in a thousand. But the chances of that freak wave are one in a thousand, too. I stumbled down the companionway and along the passage to the captain's cabin. Oh, Mr. Warner. Mother Willis. Hi, ah, isn't this cabin a mess? I'm trying to get some of these things out to dry. Yeah, well, uh, uh, I, I just wanted to check. Uh, where's that box that was under the captain's bunk? Oh, that. I just threw it out on deck. What? Oh, the desk over there slid into it. It was all smashed. But the, the small box inside of it, what happened to that? Oh, they were both splintered, Mr. Warner. Broke wide open. No. Mr. Warner, as white as a sheet. Mother Willis, will you go find Captain Wood? Tell him to come down here immediately. Well, I got a great deal to do in here. Please, get him at once. Very well. I suppose I can finish up here later. I pulled open the top drawer of the bureau beside me. Took out the captain's flashlight and a loaded pistol. Mother Willis had left the mop standing by the door. I put my foot on the head of it and snapped off the handle. Every move I made turned into slow motion. I could hear my own heart beating. Slowly, I started to search the cabin. Sodden heaps of clothing scattered around on a wet black floor. I punched at them one at a time, holding the gun cocked flashlight pointing along the stick. Nothing. I worked around the room, throwing the light into the dark corners, back of the desk, under the bunk. And wherever I turned, I could feel those cold and blinking eyes at my back, watching, waiting. Using the stick, I pushed open the closet door and threw the light inside. Carefully, I poked at the boxes and junk on the floor. And the snake was not in the closet. Inch by inch, I covered the entire cabin, and only... Only then, a horrible realization began to dawn on me. Captain Wood. Father Willis just told me. Well, Christopher, so it's happened. That's right. It's happened. I see you found the gun. We'd better start searching the cabin here. Captain Wood. I just finished searching it. Then... Women, kids, left thing loose on board. A thousand places for it to hide. God help us, Christopher. There's no use starting to blame anybody now, gentlemen. I didn't call you in here to pass judgment. The thing's done. And that's that. You're right there, Captain. What we have got to do is make up our minds how we're going to handle it. Well, it would be easier if we didn't have to tell the passengers and crew. I've seen panics aboard liners before, sir. Yes, I agree with you, Mr. Bowman, but I don't quite see how we can avoid it. They've got a right to know, sir. 
As long as that snake is loose, everybody on board's in the same danger. And they all ought to know about it. Captain Wood, that snake is 12 feet long. It can't simply crawl into a crack. Why don't we make a quick search of the whole ship before we spread any alarm? Yes, I thought of that, Chris. Well, as far as I can see, the only place it couldn't be is in the boilers or on top of the galley stove. It might have crawled overboard. We can't count on that. We've got to assume it's on the ship somewhere. Yes, sir. And that could be anywhere, in a coil of rope or in a pile of clothes. Yes, or under some woman's berth or a baby's crib or even... We've already said it. That bushmaster could be anywhere. We've got to do something and we've got to do it fast. All right. I think the best idea is to follow Mr. Warner's suggestion and make a quick search first. You agree to that? Yes, Yes, I'll do, sir. Then if we don't find it, we'll have to warn the passenger. We've got to find it. Alone in the dim baggage room, I went through the same movements as I had earlier in the captain's cabin. Gun in one hand, flashlight in the other. Poking into every dark corner behind every trunk and box. Since the baggage room was empty, I could keep the gun cocked and ready. The rest of those poor devils were having to do the same thing. Bare-handed. All over the ship, the search went on. Here now, steward. What on earth are you doing rummaging through my cabin? Well, just, uh, checking, madam. Well, I'm quite sure there's nothing in here that has to be checked. Oh, I'm sorry, madam. It's captain's orders. It'll only take a few minutes. Well, I never heard of such a thing. A passenger simply doesn't have any privacy at all. Well, I've traveled on a lot of different lines, but I've certainly never heard of But not one of us could find that deadly shape coiled in some dark corner or outstretched along a window seat. Not one of us caught a glimpse of that horrid head with its beady, black, watchful eyes. That thing lay waiting out there somewhere along the deck, shaded in the gathering dust. But where? We didn't know. It was nearly dark when we met together again in the chart room. Well, gentlemen, there's no other way around it. We've risked all the time we can. We've got to warn the passengers. Well, how are we going to do it, Captain? Call them all together in the lounge? No. If we did anything like that, we'd be asking for a panic. We'll get one whether we ask for it or not, sir. Take a few men and go through the cabin decks. Tell them individually, inside their cabins. Watch for any that act like they might cause trouble and we'll keep an eye on them. Handle the crew the same way. Yes, sir. As soon as you're finished, arm all the deck officers and start searching again. Our only chance of preventing a panic is to find that damnable snake. The second night passed and morning came around. Gray and rainy day that dragged by. And then night came down again, third night of the terror. Again, every light burned, the whole ship seethed in the throes of incipient revolt. Faced by a horror they'd never met on the sea before, crew and officers alike were on the verge of panic. Passengers huddled in a trance-like stupor, ready to scream at the slightest unknown sound. Seven bells, I made my way forward to the chart room and found Captain Wood bent over a desk. Oh. Oh, Christopher. Come on in and sit down. It's got to be somewhere, Captain. It's got to be. I don't know. You could search this ship for six months and never cover all the places aboard. If we can only hold out for two more days, we'll be in. What's your home office say? Here's the latest wireless from him. Keep quiet and keep coming. <laughs> what else can we do? Cigarette? Yeah, thanks. How is it below? Pretty bad. Anything could happen. Yeah, that's why I took the guns away from the men. One pistol shot... We'd have a riot on our hands. The whole thing's my fault, Captain Wood. 
That's what I can't forget. Take it easy, lad. There was only some way I could pay for it myself, alone. No, I know how you feel. But it's no more your fault than mine. Or the man who asked you to bring that snake back alive. Nobody planned this. You better try to get a little sleep. Sleep? Mr. Bowman made some coffee down in the steward's galley a while ago. Go on down and get yourself a cup. And rest for a couple of hours. <laughs> rest? I can't rest. Christopher, it's not going to help anything if you stumble through a hatch half asleep and break your neck. Go on and get some coffee. One way or another, we've got to hold out for two more days. The light was on in the steward's galley and the coffee pot was standing on the stove. It was still warm, so I didn't bother to heat it. I poured out a cup, carried it over and set it on the porcelain tabletop in the center of the room. I started to light a cigarette. The door of the pan cupboard beneath the sink was standing slightly ajar, and I happened to glance toward it. I dropped the cigarette and moved slowly backward. I found the Bushmaster. As I moved, the snake slid out of the cupboard in a single sinuous glide and drew back into a loose coil on the galley floor, never taking his eyes off me. I moved slowly back, waiting any moment for that deadly slithering strike. How had he known it was me? He stayed quiet when Bowman was here. How had he picked the first time in five days that I was without a gun? My hands touched the wall behind me and I stopped. Only then I realized in terror what I'd done. The call button and the door were on the far side of the room. I backed into a dead end. I stared at the snake in fascination, expecting any moment the ripping slash of those poison fangs. Horrid coils tightened a little and, and was still again. Ten million years of evolution to produce this moment. Homo sapiens versus Lachesis mutus. A man against mute faith, and all the odds were on faith. I knew then I was going to die. Sweat run down between the wall and the palms of my hands, pressing against it. My skin crawled and twitched, and the pit of my stomach was as cold as ice. There was no sound but the rush of blood in my ears. The snake shifted again, growing into a tighter coil, always tighter. Why didn't the devil get it over with? And for an instant, his head veered away. Something moved over by the stove. I didn't dare turn to look at it. Slowly, it moved into my line of vision. It was a cat. That scrawny cat that Mother Willis had sneaked aboard in La Guara. That was arched and every hair stood on end. It moved, stiff-legged now, walking in a half circle around the snake. The Bushmaster moved slowly and kept watching the cat. He tightened. He was going to strike at any second. He struck and missed. The cat was barely out of reach. Now she was walking back and forth again. She was asking to die. Missed again by a fraction of an inch. He was striking now without even going to a full coil. Missed. Again and again. Always missing by the tiniest margin. Each time the cat danced barely out of reach, and each time she countered with one precise spat of a dainty paw, bracing her skinny frame on three stiff legs. And then suddenly I realized what she was doing. 
The Bushmaster was tiring. And one strike was just an instant slow, but in that split second, sharp claws raked across the evil head and ripped out both the lidless eyes. The cat had deliberately blinded the snake. He didn't bother to coil now, but slid after in a fury, striking wildly, but always missing. And every strike was a little slower than the last one, until finally, as the snake's neck stretched out at the end of a strike, the cat made one leap and sank a razor sharp teeth just back of the ugly head, sank him until they crunched bone. With tooth and claw, she clung as the monstrous snake flailed and lashed on the floor, striving to get those hideous coils around us, trying to break a hold, to shake off the slow and certain paralyzing death that gradually crept over him, and at last, still his struggles forever. I took a deep breath. The first in minutes. The cat lay on her side on the floor, panting, resting from the fight just over. She had a right to rest. Oh, that brave, beautiful alley cat had just saved my life. And maybe others as well. But as I turned toward the stove, I suddenly became very humble. And I knew all at once what a small thing a human being really is. I and others aboard were still alive only by the merest... There were three reasons why that cat had fought and killed the world's deadliest snake. And those three reasons came tottering out from under the stove on shaky little legs. Three kittens with their eyes bright with wonder and their tails stiff as pokers. Up on the decks, hundreds of passengers were waiting for the news. The terror was ended. Well, they could wait a little longer. I pulled open the doors of a cabinet and found a can of milk and a saucer. And then I... I dropped down on my knees. starred in a shipment of mute fate. Countdown for blastoff. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. From the far horizons of the unknown come tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, presents... X minus one... Tonight, the time is June 25th, 1962. The place, a lonely beach. The story, Saucer of Loneliness by Theodore Sturgeon.
name is Jason Berniades. I'm a newspaper reporter, 31 years old. I write poetry, but I don't show it to anybody because they might laugh. And the things I write about are very important to me. I was an only child. I never went with girls much because I'm too ugly and too sensitive. And they used to hurt me. I live alone. It isn't much fun. I'm not painting this picture of myself to get sympathy. I don't need it. But it's important that you should know the kind of person I am. Otherwise, you won't understand what I'm going to tell you. It happened tonight, the thing I'm going to tell you about. Tonight. The 25th of June, 1962. I was down on the beach... What is it, kid? You, you seen a cop around any place? On this beach? I found this pile of clothes down near the rocks. A lady's dressing and shoes. Well, did you see anybody? A girl? Well, I think so, but she was running along the sand in the moonlight. I yelled to her, but she just kept running, and then I found these. Look, kid, you go try to find a cop someplace. I'll see if I can find the girl. Okay. I thought to myself, she's dead. I'll never find her now in this white flood of moonlight with the surf seething in over the pale sand. I ran and ran until my knees buckled and went down in the swirl of it. The sea on my lips, with the taste of tears, and the whole white night shouted and wept. And then I saw her, waist deep, walking into the surf. Stop. Stop it. Come back. Come on, come out. Let go. Let me go. Don't do it. Please don't. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. I'm going to have to hit you. Forgive me. I hit her in the neck with the edge of my hand and she slumped. I brought her ashore and carried her to where a dune was between us and the water. Then I rubbed her wrists. She had a pale, beautiful face with ancient, bottomless blue eyes. She opened them and looked at me after a moment. It's all right. Here, put my coat over you. Why couldn't you leave me alone? I couldn't. Why? Because it's important to me. I suppose you want to know why I did it? If I told you I understand, would you believe me? How could you understand? Maybe I know what it means to be lonely. That. That's it, isn't it? I don't know. I'm so terribly tired. Put your head against my arm and just stay. I... Don't be afraid. I've been looking for you for a long time. Looking for me? All my life. How did you know? I don't believe you. It's true. I found your message. Oh? So you see, there's nothing to be afraid of. Not anymore. Just rest. The moonlight is terribly white. Yes. I'd like to rest for a while. She didn't remember it, of course. 
but I was one of the reporters who had covered the story when it first happened, five years ago. I'll never forget that day. I was working the police blotter. It was a quiet summer afternoon when they brought her in. Two big cops in blue uniforms. Come on now, girlie, come on. Let me go. I haven't done anything. Take it easy now. What's the trouble, Connolly? Disturbing the peace, Sergeant. Is this that Central Park call? Hey, this is it. I thought you radioed that there was a near riot up there. Oh, you should have seen the place. All right, give me the report. Well, me and Bennett got up there, and there was a mob of people all surrounding this girl, see? So we bust through, and there in the middle of maybe 600 people, she, she's lying there, sort, sort of in a faint. I asked a couple of people what the difficulty was, and they tell me it's the flying saucer. The what? The flying saucer. What flying saucer? Let me finish, Sergeant. What flying saucer, I ask. And then they says that this girl was standing on the green and suddenly the saucer comes down and starts whirring over her head like a halo. What is this, miss? A gag? It happened. It did, eh? Well, now suppose you tell me your version. I was standing in the park and I looked up and there it was. Describe it. It was beautiful. It was golden with a, a dusty finish, like, like an unripe conquered grape. It made a faint sound, a, a chord of two tones. And it circled over my head like some great round hummingbird. Go on. Well, other people must have seen it because they were all looking at me and, and pointing. I saw one man cross himself. And then it came down and, and touched me. And spoke to me. This flying saucer spoke to you? Yes. And uh, just what did it say to you? I said, what did it say? I can't tell you. A secret, huh? Yes. I see. Connolly, this girl is for Bellevue. Well, well, Sergeant, the the plain fact is that it, it happened just like that. And uh, ten witnesses all agree it did. Are you trying to tell me that there was such a thing as this whirring hummingbird of a saucer? Oh, there was that, Sergeant. And just how do you know, Connolly? Well, we've got the thing out in the squad car. You what? Bennett's bringing it in right now, see? About 36 inches across it is, and covered with strange marks. Great, Mother, did you call the bomb squad? I didn't think of it. Well, think of it, man. This may be some kind of atomic weapon. I'll turn it over to ballistics. Never mind about ballistics. Call the FBI and tell them we've got this thing. Uh, Yeah, yes, sir. Uh, What about the girl? We'll book her on disturbing the peace. I've got a feeling the government men may want a word with her. Sergeant. Uh, What is it, Benides? I'd like to do a story on this for my paper. Could I have a look at the saucer? Uh, We'd better clear it first. Well, could I talk to the girl? After she's been booked. Uh, Connolly... Is the crowd still up at the park? Uh, Very likely. Well, I'll run up there and get some eyewitnesses. Then I'd like to come back and talk to the girl. Up at the park, they were still buzzing about it. Some said she was a communist agitator. Some said it was a flying saucer from Mars, and she had stepped out of it. Others said she was a saint, and it was her halo. I took some notes, phoned the paper, and went back downtown to talk to her. But there were a couple of agents with her, and they wouldn't let me in. Now then, miss, you told the sergeant this saucer spoke to you. Is that correct? 
Yes. Did it speak to you in English? I don't know. You did understand it, though? Yes. Do you speak any other languages? No. Tell me, what message did you receive from this instrument? Wasn't anything, really. Suppose you tell me. I'd rather not. Miss, let me be very frank. I'm not a policeman. I'm a security agent. That means that I deal with problems that affect the security of our country. Do you understand? Yes. Now, we've examined this flying saucer enough to know that it is not of American manufacture. It also possesses an extremely high radioactive count. Now, that means that it was made in an area where radioactive materials are in great abundance, such as an area where atom bombs are made. That's why we want to know the message you received from the saucer. There was no message. You just made it up? Yes. I'm afraid you're lying. Suppose we have some soldiers bring the saucer in here and hold it over your head. Would you object? I don't care what you do. All right, boys, bring it in. Now, when I tell the men to hold it over your head, you try to recall what it said. I don't know what it said. Lift it up, boys. Hold it right over her head. It's talking to you now, isn't it? Yes. What is it saying? What did it say? All right, boys, crate it up and send it down to the National Research Laboratories. What about the girl, sir? We'll get nothing out of her. I don't believe she really knows what that humming noise is. Better have a psychiatrist examine her. Yes, sir. They took her to the city hospital, and she had a room to herself. Whenever the door opened, she could see the policeman outside. The door opened quite often. There were a lot of important people, some in army uniforms, who came up from Washington just to see her and talk to her. Apparently, they had analyzed the flying saucer and discovered something that made this girl about the most important person in the country. I used to stand outside, and I could identify the heads of certain security agencies, but nobody would answer the questions that the reporters shot at them. Sir, excuse me? Yes? I'm Jason Benayades from the Trib. I've been assigned to this flying saucer story as chief of the security... I'm sorry, section. I have no comment. Can you tell me how long the girl will be held? That's a matter for the civil authorities. Well, have the psychiatrist... Excuse determine... me, Mr. Benayades, my car's waiting. A few days later, she was released from the hospital and returned to the court to be tried on the disorderly conduct charge. They found her guilty and fined her $15 and turned her loose. When she walked out of the courtroom, she was handed a subpoena to appear before a congressional committee in private session. She answered all their questions except one. My paper sent me over to cover the hearings. Now, young lady... I want to remind you that I'm a senator of the United States and empowered by the people of this country to ask questions relating to matters of security. Do you understand? Yes. Your name is Janet Boyce, is it not? I told you that. Now, at an earlier session, you testified that as a young girl, you were a member of a certain organization in your neighborhood. Would you name it? The Rinky Dinks. Who comprised the Rinky Dinks, Miss Boyce? It was just a bunch of girls who got together to... Play field hockey and listen to recordings. Any particular recordings? Mostly Eddie Fisher. I see. Now, this flying saucer, you said it talked to you. You did say that, didn't you? Yes. And then you denied it? Yes. Why? Because I was tired of answering questions. Young woman, let me put something to you squarely. Oh, by the way, I think if there are members of the press here, I can divulge a rather spectacular piece of information to you. Mm. 
<clears throat> this flying saucer has been thoroughly examined and analyzed, and I wish to inform the people of this great nation that it definitely, I repeat, it definitely did not originate on this planet. <laughs> now, now then, now then, Miss Boyce, consider that it is possible that our Earth might be attacked from outer space by beings much stronger and cleverer than we are. And consider that perhaps you have the key to our defense against those beings. Don't you owe it to the world? I don't think I owe anything to anybody. Even if the earth was not attacked, just think what an advantage it would give this country over its enemies. Young woman, I ask you, what did that flying saucer say to you? Do you know that what you are doing is tantamount to working for the enemies of your country? I will give you one more chance. What was the message? It was personal. Gentlemen, I move that Miss Janet Boyce be cited for contempt. The furor was fantastic. The chief of security blasted the senator for divulging secret information about the origin of the flying saucer, and the senator said the people had a right to know, and besides, he was just guessing anyway, and happened to guess right. Meanwhile, the press printed the girl's picture all over the front page and ran banner headlines such as Girl refuses to betray Martian secrets. Flying saucer girl won't talk, cited for contempt. The contempt trial was equally spectacular. She didn't plead any amendment or anything. She just said the saucer was talking to her and it was nobody else's business. She was convicted and sentenced to five years in prison. Boniades. Yes, Chief. For the Sunday supplement? What? What, do you think there's anything in it? Okay, whatever you say. Oh, Mike, get me everything you can on that flying saucer girl, will you? Yeah, the one that was sent to jail about four years ago. See if you can find out what she's doing now. She was released about six months ago, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, the boss wants a feature for the Sunday supplement. Okay. I found out she had gotten a job cleaning at night in offices and stores down near the beachfront. There weren't many to clean, but that meant there weren't many people to remember her face from the newspapers. I tracked her down and caught up with her in a one-armed coffee joint about four in the morning. Excuse me, miss. Do you mind if I sit here? No, no. Nice night, isn't it? Moonlight and everything. Which are you? Security, newspapers, or just somebody out for a good time? You're pretty bitter, aren't you? Shouldn't I be? Yeah, I guess you should. Um, my name is Jason Boniades. I'm with a newspaper. It's been nice meeting you. I have to go now. Just a minute. Please. I can't blame you. How did you find me? One of the leg men located your mother. I talked to her earlier tonight. 
Oh. How is she? Still hitting the bottle. The way she knew where you were, you sent her some flowers on her birthday, remember? Yes. She wouldn't talk to me. Said she didn't want a daughter who was a jailbird. Tell me how it's been. So you can write about it? I promise you I won't write anything you don't want me to write. Okay. You want to know how it's been? Right after I got out of jail, I met a man at a restaurant. Nice man. He asked me for a date. I spent every cent I had on a red handbag to go with my red shoes. They, they weren't the same shade, but anyway, they were both red. And I was very excited about the date. We went to a movie. Afterward, he didn't even try to kiss me or anything. He just wanted to know what the flying saucer had told me. Didn't say anything. I just went home and cried all night. And that was it? No. I had another date. I get pretty lonely. This time, they arrested the man I was with. He was a Russian agent. On Christmas Eve, four men called me up and sang me a song. Would you like to hear the words? Uh, it doesn't matter. They go, the flying saucer came down one day and taught her a brand new way to play. And what it was, she will not say. But she takes me out of this world. I'm sorry. Now will you go away and leave me alone? Yes. Aren't you going to ask me the big question? No. Everybody does. No, well, not me. You will, sooner or later. Maybe. Look, uh, can I take you home? No. Can I see you again? I... Please. I don't know. I'm afraid to let myself like anyone. Trust me, will you? I'm... I'm not sure. Maybe. Maybe. I'll wait here for you tomorrow night. All right. The next night, I went back to the coffee joint to wait for her. I knew she got through about four in the morning. I got there about 15 minutes early. Mr. Benitez? Yes. Say, you're the chief of the security section, aren't you? You Mr. have a good memory. You mind if I sit down? Well, I'm expecting someone. Yes, I know. Oh, I see. I'd like to talk to you. Go ahead. You, uh... You probably know that we've been trying to gain the confidence of this girl for some years now. Yes. And, uh... Apparently, you've succeeded where we've failed. Well, not really. In any event, you seem to be making some progress. She may not even show up. I think she will. Now, I'm going to ask you to help us. Help? In what way can I help? We have reason to believe that this girl is a courier for some alien power. On what do you base that? Well, there was the incident of the saucer, of course. We've definitely established that it came from some other planet. And recently, she's been throwing messages inside bottles into the ocean. What sort of messages? They're always the same. I have one right here. You're welcome to read it and see if it makes any sense. 
We've had every decoding expert in the service trying to break it. But we can't seem to find the key. I see. Now, she's throwing literally hundreds of these messages in bottles into the sea. We've got many of them, but not all, naturally. Now, what we're most interested in is locating the contact. Naturally. And that's where you fit in. We'd like you to gain this girl's confidence even further. Try to find out just what these messages mean, and beyond that, what the saucer said to her. You'll be doing us a favor and your country a great service. You're... You're certain this is some subversive activity on her part? How else can you explain the fact that she won't tell us her secret? Maybe because it's hers, and everybody has a right to have something of his own. Are you, uh... Trying to tell me that you won't cooperate? I didn't say that. I'd like to remind you, Mr. Benaides, that you have a duty to us. I know that. I also have a duty to myself. And to God. Now, if you'll excuse me. I folded the bottle message and put it in my pocket. I waited for her to show up. The minutes went by, and the hours, and I knew she wasn't coming. Oh, she had come and seen me with the chief and changed her mind. That's when I left the cafe and walked down to the beach. That's when I dragged her out of the surf before she could follow one of her bottles into the water. How do you feel now? Are you cold? Why should you care? I do. Is that why you were sitting with the security chief in the cafe? I didn't arrange that meeting. He asked me to spy on you. I suppose he told you about the bottles. Yes. <laughs> Wonder how much of the taxpayers' money they spent gathering them up. I think they'd get tired of it. All the writing in the bottles is the same. Maybe you could have saved a lot of trouble. Do you think so? All of them. Judges, jailers, jukeboxes, people. Do you really think it would have saved me a minute's trouble if I told them the whole truth at the very beginning? Wouldn't it? No. They wouldn't have believed me. What they wanted was a, a new weapon. Some... Super scientific, super science from some alien super race. Science. That's all they think of. Well, it's pretty important. Would it ever have occurred to them that this super race from another planet might have super feelings? Or super longings? Super loneliness? No. All they think about is weapons. Isn't it time you asked me what the saucer said? No. They all asked me. I don't have to ask you. I know. You know? Let me read it to you. There is in certain living souls a quality of loneliness unspeakable so great it must be shared as company is shared by lesser beings 
such a loneliness is mine. So know by this that in immensity there is one lonelier than you. How did you know? It's the message you put in the bottles. The same message that some lonely, strange being in some other world put into a bottle, only his bottle was a flying saucer and sent across space to you. You knew. I'm lonely too. Look at me. I've never had the love of a woman. They think I'm pretty ugly. You're not ugly. No. I don't feel ugly right now. Say it again. The message from the saucer. Know by this that in immensity there is one lonelier than you. I wonder if whoever first wrote it has found someone. I think perhaps he has. She looked at me and said nothing. But it was as if a light came from her. More light than even the practiced moon could cast. Among the many things it meant, was the fact that even to loneliness there is an end for those who are lonely enough, long enough. You have just heard X-1 presented by the National Broadcasting Company in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine which this month features I Am a Nucleus by Stephen Barr, the story of a man who felt he was hexed because his comfortably untidy world had suddenly turned into a monstrosity of order. Galaxy Magazine, on your newsstand today. Tonight, by transcription, X-1 has brought you Saucer of Loneliness, a story from the pages of Galaxy written by Theodore Sturgeon and adapted for radio by George Lefferts. Featured in the cast were Elaine Rost as Janet Nat Poland as Jason, William Keene as the sergeant, Jock McGregor as the cop, Mandel Kramer as the chief, and Wendell Holmes as the senator. This is Fred Collins. X-1 was directed by Fred Way and is an NBC Radio Network production. (laughs) 